The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. My name is Gemma Purdy. Nadlatul Ulama is Indonesia's largest civil society and Islamic organization. Its membership is estimated to be somewhere in the range of 40 to 90 million people. NU occupies a highly significant position historically and ideologically in Indonesian society and politics. And within the current government, its members hold key positions. As Indonesian democracy continues to show signs of regression and increasing Islamization, what is NU's role? How does it continue to defend its position as a moderate Muslim organization and defender of pluralism? How will its new leader shape its approach ahead of the elections in 2024? To answer these questions and more, my guest today is Alex Arifianto from Nanyang Technology University in Singapore. Hello, Alex, and welcome to Talking Indonesia. Thank you for being here. My, my pleasure. It's, a, it's an honor. Well, thank you. We're pleased to have you. So, Alex, I wondered if you might be able to begin by giving our listeners a little bit of background on Nadlatul Ulama, NU, a little brief history, if you can, of the organization, who are its members, and maybe a sense of its role in their lives. Well, uh, Nadatu Ulama is the largest Islamic organization in Indonesia. It's founded in 1926, uh, almost a century ago, and it claims to have approximately 100 million Indonesian Muslims out of a population of approximately 230 million Muslims living in Indonesia today. In terms of the background of its members, uh, historically, NU's been a rural-based organization, although that is now changing as uh, Indonesia become more urbanized, but the bulk of the NU followers uh, in terms of their socioeconomic background tend to be uh, farmers, uh, fishermen, uh, laborers, uh, basically uh, low uh, middle income Indonesians that generally they adhere to the plan of belief. Like, yes, uh, they, they're following the basic dictates of uh, Islamic teachings according to the Quran and to the saying of the Prophet or the, or the Sunnah. But they also adhere to some of these uh, more Japanese-based rituals, like uh, saying prayers for you know, birthday or important occasions, what Japanese call Slamatan or prayer in front of the grave of an important relative, uh, what the NU people call ziarah kubur. So this is uh, the, some of the uh, rituals that uh, distinguish uh, NU from other Islamic groups in Indonesia. 
that tend to look at how these localized rituals to be something that is heretical and therefore should be banned as proper teachings of Islam. This is one of the contention points where NU often engage in this sectarian-like debate between itself and the other Islamic groups who write and who can speak for Indonesian Islam properly. Okay, yes, we will get to that in a moment. But I guess, too, why would someone join an Islamic organization like NU? How does it play out in their daily lives as well as following the particular forms of Islam that you've mentioned? What about organizationally? How does that play out? Are there schools that are particular schools for NU members, other organizational kind of structures that are used by people? I think the reason why people join NU is that they wanted to belong to this community or believers, uh, what uh, what Muslims call jama'ah, adhere to you know, these uh, basic teachings as well as rituals uh, mm-hmm. that, that that become kind of like identity markers for NU members and for uh, the so-called traditionalist Islamic community, marked by this adherence to these rituals, plus uh, emphasizing the right of the clerics or ulama as primary interpreters of Islamic teachings, similar to the, the priests in the Roman Catholic Church. So, so, and this is another marker that distinguishes NU from other Islamic groups that tend to believe in more individualized teaching interpretation of uh, Islam. And in terms of religious uh, schooling, NU does have institutions, Pesantren or Islamic boarding school, in which parents send their children to be educated in religious education from basically the time of their primary school up into high school level. And today, NU claims to have approximately 30,000 of these pesantrens all over Indonesia. But having said that, one one should be noted that because of the socioeconomic basis of NU members that tend to be you know people from a low income background, a typical NU pesantren does not have the same amount of income as schools uh, or you know institutions established by uh, one of uh, uh, the, the, the other major Islamic organization in Indonesia. So the NU is not the only organization representing Muslims in Indonesia. Can yeah. you briefly again tell us a little bit about the other major groups and what distinguishes them? You've already Okay, well, uh, yeah, uh, other than NU, uh, the other major group in Indonesia is uh, Muhammadiyah, which today it has somewhere between 20 to 30 million claim followers. In terms of income, they tend to be more uh, well-off compared to NU people because they, they come from the rank of uh, business people, merchants, uh, civil servants, in terms of its uh, theology, uh, Muhammadiyah, they emphasize individualized uh, interpretation of the Quran versus relying on interpretation of the ulama like the majority of NU people believe. This is one of the main theological differences between the two organizations. But uh, beyond NU and Muhammadiyah, you also have some of these newer Islamic organizations 
they've been around for some time, but they've only been formally established after the Reformasi in 1998 because many of the newer organizations tend to have transnational Islamist uh, linkages. We're talking about Tarbiyah or the Religious Nigerian Movement that is primarily affiliated with the Prosperous Justice Party or PKS. It is theologically identical to the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And some of your listeners might be familiar with Hizbut Tahrir Indonesia or HDI that, that were banned a couple of years ago. And you know, it is also a transnational Islamist organization which uh, advocated uh, Indonesia along you know, with other Muslim-majority nations uh, to be ruled under a single Islamic caliphate. And this is how, you know, HDI got into the legal trouble several years ago. Beyond PKS and HDI, you also have dozens, uh, perhaps perhaps even hundreds, smaller Islamic organizations. Many of them are inspired by the Salafi and Jamaah Tablik or also these other transnational Islamist uh, organizations that emphasize reformation or purification of uh, Islamic teachings. Mm-hmm. And one thing that all these organizations uh, have in common is that because of their emphasis toward purification of rituals and reformation of Islam, this is something that uh, NU tend to be strongly against because uh, all of these teachings basically undermine the authority of NU ulama because of their emphasis on individual interpretations, emphasize on the rejection of many of the customs and rituals that NU people tend to believe, declaring them to be haram and so forth. And and that's why you end up with these sometimes, you know, sectarian-like differences. Right. That's interesting. So we often hear NU and Muhammadiyah group together, obviously, because they are the two largest. But we often hear of them both called moderate organizations. Is that a correct view, do you think? And what does that mean, moderate? Well, uh, that's that's a very good question. I think moderate in terms of context of Indonesian Islam is that you believe that is no contradiction between your religious teachings with how the Indonesian state is being organized constitutionally as a largely secular, uh, nationalistic state. There is nothing wrong between one's religious belief and the socio-political foundation of the state. And the reason why NU and Muhammadiyah, they were called moderate, is because during the mid-1980s, both of them, this was the height of the Suharto's new order, that both the organizations basically accept the Pancasila's, Indonesia's nationalist ideology as a foundation for their legal standing as well. And then from the 1980s onwards, both NU and Muhammadiyah basically declare that they're compatible with democracy, compatible with uh, the norms associated with Western liberal tradition, like religious moderation, religious tolerance, acceptance of non-Islamic belief, what Bob Hefner called civil Islam or pluralist outlook. This is you know, something that distinguishes NU and Muhammadiyah with some of these other newer groups. Even though some, at least publicly, accepted Pancasila as well, but they still want 
Indonesia to be strongly based by Islamic legal teachings. And unlike NU and Muhammadiyah that basically accept that Indonesia as a Pancasila-based state is final and non-negotiable. And those values that you were talking about when you were describing the moderates, a person that comes to mind, a very famous contemporary NU figure, leader of NU, Abdurrahman Wahid, known as Gustur, Indonesia's fourth president from 1999 to 2001, and also founder of the National Awakening Party, or PKB, a political party. So I guess that brings the question, have these religious organizations, including NU and Muhammadiyah, historically also taken on a a role in national politics? They have so many members, the potential obviously is significant. Uh, Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think many scholars would argue that politics have become deeply ingrained within both NU and Muhammadiyah from the time these organizations uh, were founded. Uh, NU in 1926, Muhammadiyah in 1912. And, you know, basically during the Dutch colonial period, uh, both of them were involved in the movement to advocate for Indonesia as uh, independence from the Dutch in 1945 during the subsequent war of independence both NU and Muhammadiyah form armed militia groups in order to support the newly founded uh, Republic and in their struggle against the Dutch and then in the 1950s during the Indonesia's first democratic period you have both organizations basically forming their own uh, political parties. You know, Muhammadiyah and the other reformist group were part of the Masyumi Party in the 1950s, while Nahdlatul Ulama, which initially joined Masyumi, broke off from it in 1952 to establish its own Nahdlatul Ulama Party. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think you, you could say that both organizations were always heavily involved in Indonesian politics, you know, basically from, from the start of Indonesia's independence and if not earlier. But I think one, one main difference, and this is where tokoh like Gusdur or like Amin Rais from the Muhammadiyah said came along is that in the 1980s, there is this shift from the ideological foundation of both group that earlier on, before 1984, both the both group still advocating that Indonesia should eventually be an Islamic state. But after 1984, with their acceptance of the Pancasila, they stopped advocating this, this notion and instead they start to change their political theology to basically say Indonesia is a Pancasila state. Mm, and you mentioned Amin Rais and Gustur himself and others who were involved in the Reformasi movement, key individuals that ushered in reforms in Indonesia and a new period of democracy after 1998. As you know, there's general consensus that Indonesian democracy has regressed. You actually called it a former democracy in something I was reading of yours. Others have referred to the conservative turn, the illiberal turn, and have observed that in part this is due to increasing Islamization in Indonesian society and politics. Given what you've just outlined about the positions of NU and Muhammadiyah, tell us a little bit about the importance of this series of events in 2016-2017, a series of demonstrations, the so-called Defend Islam demonstrations, a movement which was particularly uh, directed against the then governor of Jakarta, Basuki or Ahok, 
you know, you've written and others have too about how this has marked a real watershed for democracy in Indonesia, but also for these particular moderate Islamic organisations. So how did NU respond at the time to these demonstrations? Well, uh, I think uh, uh, NU during the Defend Islam protests uh, basically condemned the protests, saying that these protests were, were illegitimate. They constituted an attack on the Indonesian state and on the Pancasila. And they, you know, the NU leadership uh, formally discouraged NU followers and members to join the protests. But uh, what is uh, striking about it is that despite the discouragement of both NU and Muhammadiyah leadership against their members from joining in the protests, in practice, you got, you know, hundreds of thousand Muslims, including many with, you know, NU and Muhammadiyah affiliation, actually joined the protests uh, anyway. And I think uh, uh, after this, you know, what uh, you know, ma- many of us are beginning to realize is that, uh, you know, the authority of both NU and Muhammadiyah as uh, the leading two Indonesian Islamic organizations, the one with the most uh, religious authority to speak in the name of Islam for, for Indonesian Muslims, their authority seems to be uh, undermined in a big way because, you know, despite discouragement against the rallies, many of its rank and file members continue to join uh, anyway. So I think uh, as, as a reaction to these rallies, what uh, Nadatu Ulama did is that uh, uh, basically NU aligned itself more closely to the administration of President Jokowi Dodo and then both banded together to basically crack down on some of the groups that were affiliated uh, with the Defend Islam movement like Hisputaril Indonesia, which was banned in summer uh, 2017. And then in late 2020, you got the Islamic Defenders Front or FBI, which was, you know, the leading organizer of the Defend Islam movement, be formally banned by the, by the government. And then you have its leader, you know, Rizik Sihab, were soon after uh, sentenced to prison. So basically, the Jokowi administration and NU have become closer now. I think, you know, they see the Islamists who were behind the Defend Islam rallies as a primary threat for the future of the Indonesian state, as well as primary threat for the long-term continuity of the government and also for NU itself. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, uh, and NU's authorities and membership has slowly been eroded by the ability of this smaller but numerous Islamist group to recruit many of its uh, members, especially you know, more worrying those who are in uh, young age uh, millennials at university campuses and other outlets. And these acts that you describe of cracking down on what are called radical organizations that you're mentioning, they've been condemned as well, right, by, you know, many who've seen the government as overreaching. And I guess this is where it's interesting you mentioned NU having a very influential role here. The Minister for Religion is traditionally an NU person, isn't that right? Yep, that's right. Yeah. So 
how does this all sit within the history of NU as embracing a more pluralist view and a human rights focus? How does that sit with the membership, this crackdown on these groups? Well, I think what is interesting is that I think most NU members and activists, basically, they still tend to believe that, oh, we're still a believer in pluralism, uh, toleration, in democracy. I think you know, if you ask a, a typical and or activist, uh, he or she would, would most likely answer that we still a believer in all these uh, values. But the trouble often comes when these other groups uh, begin to challenge some of the authority on tradition and rituals that were closely affiliated with the practices of the NU. So basically, you know, I think my point is that I think NU people, they're plural, they're tolerant, unless their opponents start attacking some of their basic belief. And mm-hmm. this is where the, the sectarianism that divides NU and the other Islamic group comes in. Mm, Yeah, so you've written about this sectarianism and it's not something that we really readily associate with Indonesia, I think, um, Alex, when, you know, we might think about Lebanon or Syria or these kinds of places where you think in terms of sectarianism. But you've observed that antagonisms in particular between NU and Muhammadiyah in recent times maybe have been growing and amount to sectarianism, particularly under the current government. Do you want to elaborate on your argument there? I should first mention that by sectarianism here, I do not mean sectarianism that leads into violence or act of major fighting between the different Islamic groups. I think what was happening, what I observe is that you have this more softer, you know, sectarianism that's probably much less violent or that don't involve violence at all. But still, it's there because of how this different in the type of customs, rituals, traditions between NU, Muhammadiyah, and you know the, the newer Islamic groups like PKS and the rest. Yeah, I think what you have is that NU people still you know like to defend their rituals, even though you know in the process they may contradict some of their belief in democracy, pluralism. Because, well, you know, you've, you've attacked our Kiai, mm-hmm. you've, you've, you've attacked our Tradisi. Yeah, so like rituals. sacred things. Yeah, correct. That's right. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So this is a more a softer form of sectarianism. But still, you know, it is, in, in my view, a form of sectarianism uh, uh, nonetheless. And I think this is troubling because in the process, if this continues with a close alignment between NU and the Jokowi administration, is that it has an effect of denying or excluding the other Islamic groups from participating in the government as well. I think you know, if you look at how many NU uh, ministers are there now. I think most observers count probably at least you've got you know, five NU ministers in the cabinet now, but only one person from Muhammadiyah in the current cabinet, which is different from the time of uh, you know, President Yudhoyono and the previous regimes, where you know usually the previous regimes would try to ensure that both NU and Muhammadiyah would have more or less equal representation in the cabinet. But now, even though Muhammadiyah is still represented in the cabinet and in other political appointments, 
the number of uh, Muhammadiyah people are greatly reduced compared to the NU. Just one example, when the new members of the Indonesian Election Commission or the KPU were announced about last month, I noticed that there's probably about maybe up to four NU members, but only one person from Muhammadiyah which was in contrast with previous practice. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, if you think about the relative sizes of the organizations, maybe there's some argument for, you know, four to one. But you're saying based on historical precedent, this has been an equal representation. And what kinds of portfolios do the NU tend to get in the cabinet or have they got currently? Uh, well, uh, of course, you know, the most significant NU appointee right now is none other than Kiai Maruf Amin, who's the current vice president of Indonesia. And of course, you know, beyond Kiai Maruf, you have Yakut Khalil Komas, the Minister of Religious Affairs. You got people in the Ministry of Manpower or Labor. The Minister of Village or Rural Development is also NU. But what is interesting is that today, the Minister of uh, Education in the current government is not a Muhammadiyah person, which is something that is a bit unusual. The conventional arrangement is that an NU person would become Minister of Religious Affairs, while a Muhammadiyah person would be in the Minister of Education. Right. Yeah. And instead, you have a non-political person, a business person, in that yes, role right. currently, yeah, which is, That's you know, right. like a, a marked a different shift also in the Jokowi cabinet. And yes. so you've written about how you can make an argument for this growing sectarianism, particularly the antagonisms between NU and Muhammadiyah as being part of this illiberal turn or whatever you, you prefer to call it, but a regression in the democratic uh, situation in Indonesia. Uh, yeah, I think this is definitely something that, you know, of concern. Uh, that even though you know people recognize that NU is still claimed to be to be a modern organization, and many of their members are still advocating and and fighting for the right of low income people like like farmers, uh, fishermen. But having said that, you also have this uh, regression in their ability to try to respect and tolerate different viewpoints. I think instead of trying to answer every criticism with a police report, it would be better than, well, let's just you know, agree to disagree with some of this theological stuff, continue our dialogue. Mm, yes, that's interesting. I mean, when I think of Gustur, that comes to mind. But you've talked about the missing middle here, and I guess that's the, the missing moderate voices that might have played a role otherwise in mediating between government and the movement, say the Defend Islam movement, there could have been a space there for organisations like NU Muhammadiyah to create that dialogue, but that didn't happen. Uh, yeah, I think this is one of the regrettable effect of the increasing political polarization and sectarianism in Indonesia today, that uh, in theory, uh, both NU and Muhammadiyah could have acted to become mediator for Saudi's deep-seated theological and political dispute between different factions within the Indonesian society. But I think what happened in practice is that many members of their organizations are instead are also, thanks to this deep polarization, they also become you know, swamped and, and involved in this debate 
instead of trying to become what the you know, earlier generation tokoh like Gusdur or Buya Syafi Marif from Muhammadiyah tend to advocate. Uh, instead of polarization, let's have dialogue. You and I are still fellow Indonesian citizens that have the same rights to speak their mind. And, mm. But I think in practice, in today, this hasn't always happened. Mm. And leadership is important here, Alex. So there's been a change in leadership very recently. So I wonder if there's going to be a change too in the approach that NU is taking. Give us a little bit of a background to NU's new leader, Yaya Holil Stakhuf, who's replacing Saeed Akil. What's his background? What kind of leader do you think he will be? Well, Gus Yahya, as you know, he commonly known, he's a... Uh, you know, he's somebody who has deep roots within the NU's, you know, organization. He's coming from the so-called blue blood or darah biru background, meaning that because he's descended from one of the founding kiai of the NU. So I think I think this is one thing that distinguishes his leadership from the, the previous chairman, Said Agil, who's not a blue blood. But now, you know, you see uh, Gus Yahya, backed by the other founding families of the NU, including you know, the Wahid family and, of course, you know, his own family. Because you know, Gus Yahya uncle is Mustafa Bisli, one of the deeply respected senior Kiai that is a close ally of Gus Dur. But beyond you know, his uh, family background, Gus Yahya is uh, recognized as a communicator. He's somebody who uh, has experience uh, in during the Gusdur time, serve as a presidential spokesperson. He's also you know, able to speak English uh, very well. I think he has a deep desire to try to increase NU's international presence. He wants to increase NU's role as one of the leading moderate Islamic organizations in the world. In spite of its size, NU is not known internationally as a major Islamic organization in comparison to some other more infamous group like the Muslim Brotherhood or Hamas or, or, or others. So I think this is trying to promote an U overseas is one of one of Kusiaya's platform. But I think he's also wanted to pull back well, politically because I think he has responded to criticisms including from many and from NU's own ranks that NU has become too close with the Jokowi regime over the past few years mm-hmm. and they wanted to return NU to the original vision of Gusdur when Gusdur became first chairman in the 1984 that NU should be an independent and civil society organization that do not play politics. Uh, and I think on the second challenge, yes, even though he has uh, publicly proclaimed that he's going to restore this policy, I think in practice it's going to be quite uh, difficult because uh, many NU clerics, many NU activists have now earned positions within the Jokowi administrations. And, you know, and, and this is how the ways for NU to gain financial patronage from the state to just suddenly pull back and declare that, oh, we want to be a politically neutral civil society organization once again, I think it's going to be quite difficult because, you know, NU would have to reduce its involvement with the regime, you know, probably pulling back from some of this position and mm-hmm. 
Uh, I don't. I don't think it's uh, politically uh, feasible for NU to do that at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could also note that the Minister for Religious Affairs is um, Gusiaya's brother, isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so my uh, sources within NU also have told me that Gusia could also have bigger ambitions within the PKB. Be interesting to see, you know, if. You know, the PKB is led by Gus Gus Yahya's uh, brother because you know, basically you got the you know, same family member running both the civil society realm, which is NU, and the political arm, which is PKB. Interesting indeed. So we're already kind of looking to the future here in our conversation and the 2024 national and presidential elections just around the corner. How do you think that NU is going to continue to promote its moderate Islamic vision within this context of Indonesia's increasing conservatism, I guess? I think because of NU's large mass base, this is going to be an important voting block to be looked after by any of the aspiring prospective presidential candidate, whether it's Ganjar Pranowo or Anis Baswedan or Prabowo Subianto. They all would see that their path toward the presidency would not be viable without having a significant number of NU voters backing them up. It's also going to depend on who's probably going to be the running mate of some of these prospective presidential candidates. Would either Ganjar or Anis call somebody like Kofifa Indar Parawangsa, the current governor of East Java, who's also a, mem- a board member of Nahdatu Ulama and chairman of its women's wing, Fatayat. Well, would, would that be successful? If, if either one of them is successful to hold Ibu Kofifa to become their running mate, then their ability to attract more NU followers into their rank would be more interesting. Indeed. I hadn't factored that when I've been thinking about possible presidential running mates. That's really, really interesting. And I guess final question is, what's at stake if NU fails, if it kind of goes down the path of this increasing what you've called soft sectarianism? What is the outcome of of that path? It's always difficult to predict what would happen in the future, but I think I would say the continuing you know, soft sectarianism would you know, basically fit into this deep religious polarization that eventually also becomes political since the 2014 election. That would continue, and I think it's going to be very troubling for the future of Indonesia if you have a deep polarization between one hand the so-called moderates that backing the secular nationalist element represented by the Jokowi and the PDIP party and on the other hand you also have the other Islamic groups that are theologically and politically different from the NU if you see this deep polarization continues yeah, I think in the long run, it could threaten the integrity of the Indonesian state. Over time, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not claiming that Indonesia is going to become a next Lebanon or Yugoslavia because that is too far-fetched at this point. But having said that, I think uh, this depolarization would not be allowed to continue either because over the long run, it would increase the degree of 
polarization and sectarianism between NU and other Muslim groups. And I think uh, politically, it is something that's not going to be healthy for the future of Indonesia as diverse, multicultural, and democratic uh, nation state. Yeah, indeed. Well, I think you've given us a little bit of hope there in Gustiaya's pledge to step back from politics. So let's see. It's going to be a really interesting next couple of years. So thank you so much for your time, Alex. You're welcome, Gemma. That was Alex Arifianto, a research fellow with the Indonesia program at the S. Raja Ratnam School of International Studies at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. Talking Indonesia will return on the 12th of May, hosted by Dave McRae. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.